Got your Bibles? Probably not. Got your phone? Probably do. Mark chapter 1. And we are, if you're new to this place, we are going through the book of Mark. We started that at the beginning of January. Uh, Just to let you know where this is headed, um, we are not going to be in the book of Mark from now until we're done. We're going to take chunks of Mark, and we're going to insert some other things along the way, okay? So, um, So it could take us the better part of two years to get through Mark, because we're taking chunks at a time, all right? So um, very excited about it. And we started 2020, like I said, in the book of Mark. And part of this journey we've been on at the beginning of 2020 is this whole idea about discipleship. Now, there, um, we've, ha- we've had this conversation. We're, 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 we're asking questions. What is discipleship? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And, and really, and I don't know if you've noticed, but If you've been around here for a while, one of the biggest journeys that I personally have been on over the last number of years, really uh, going back before we even decided to plant this church, but one of the biggest journeys that I've been on in the last number of years is in this area of discipleship. What does this mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And through being uh, your pastor and planting this church, Um, There have been um, real seasons of frustration for me in regards to what is church? What does it look like to be a group of people that follow Jesus? And what does this look like? And so there are tons of books and conferences and things for pastors. There are. There's tons of them. There's ones about leadership, and there's ones about evangelism, and, and ones about missions, and there's, there's, there's all these different conferences and books and things, and how to plant a church, how to plant a big church, how to plant a cool church, all these things. There's so much out there. And, um, and I found myself um, getting really, really frustrated and really disgusted. And because it just felt like wherever I went, um, it was how to um, outcool the other church and, and how to put butts in seats and bucks in the bank and how to build an institution, how to build a brand. And it's really everywhere I turned. And it was about year three here at Restoration that we really felt like we were stuck. We felt like we were like trying to plant a church uh, that fit this kind of cultural model, right, of what a church should be. And, and so somehow along the way, I got in touch with other books, other books that didn't make me want to throw open my mouth. <laughs> that was totally graphic. I'm sorry. But there was just this real frustration for me. And so there was a, a guy on our leadership team named Gabe Nip. Some of you guys remember Gabe and Brooke. And they moved to the Springs. And we still are bitter. But um, Gabe and I began to read this book. And then we, our leadership team began to read this book. And it was a book called Shrink. And basically this book is a, a book called Faithful Ministry in a Church Growth Culture. And it was one of those books that wrecked me. It was one of those books that got me to rethink and to unlearn things that I'd learned 
picked up along the way. Um, I was a part of a church up, up in Broomfield that actually doesn't exist anymore. But at one time, it was one of the fastest growing churches in the denomination. And it's gone. It no longer meets. And, and so there was just a lot of baggage and frustration from that. And, and so I, I began to read this book, and I have this quote in this book that so stuck out to me that it was circled, underlined, highlighted. I tattooed it, but I won't show you. Just kidding, I did not. And this won't be on the screen. I'm just, this came to me this morning, and it just reminded me of some things. This guy named Tim Suttle, he actually had this huge church, and he downsized it. It was awesome. He said, Christian leadership has too often become about pragmatism. What works, makes us grow, gets me predictable results, is most effective. While faithfulness has taken a back seat, pastors have morphed into CEOs, and the worth of leaders has become intrinsically tied to the success of their congregations and ministries. And I read that, and I just said, ugh. Like, if our whole goal was to just get you guys to show up, um, that would just be a, a, just a really sucky goal. And so through some of the books I've read, some of the books I've chosen not to read, um, some of my own study and restudying of the life of Jesus, some of them are relationships, like I said, with my friend Gabe and with like Dan and Randy and some other folks that just, I just feel like are beating of the same heartbeat. We just have just come to a different understanding of what discipleship is. And I'm not there yet. I'm like, I'm still trying to figure this out. And like I said a few weeks ago, the disciples, you look at their lives, they kept screwing things up. They kept trying to like jockey for position. They kept trying to get Jesus to do things that he wasn't there to do. They, they kept trying to figure out this whole following Jesus thing. And if you follow the disciples all the way through their life, like Peter, like 10, 12 years down the road, still jacking things up. Like they're still trying to figure things out. So we have to give each other grace. Like we're just trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so we gather here on Sunday to declare that Jesus is Lord together. We do that in worship. We do that um, in, 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 in learning and listening and all those things. We, we unlearn things. We remind ourselves of some things. Um, and, and we're here to practice and, and to begin maybe what it looks like to practice. Remember, the, the word Christian only shows up in the New Testament three times. The word disciple shows up 269 times. It actually means much more than just believing the right things about Jesus. And it's much more than a category like, you know, I'm a sports fan and I'm a, you know, whatever. Disciple actually means apprentice. And when Jesus said, come and be my disciple, he's actually come, come and follow me, come apprentice me, come do what I do, think how I think, love how I love. He's like, that's what I want you to do. Well, of course, the disciples weren't very good at it. The problem for us is we've kind of mixed a couple of things. And I've shared this before. We've mixed this uh, following Jesus thing with kind of how America's set up. 
how our kind of suburban culture is set up. And we've mixed those, and that's super dangerous. Because what's happened is, as I think that a lot of us, we've come to believe that we can be a Christian without being a disciple. That like, we can believe the right things about Jesus and still just build our lives how we want and structure our lives how we want. Um, and so I think there's just two different ways to look at this. this. Sorry, this is a very long intro. But I think that I have grown up with and, and kind of assumed in my life this idea of transactional discipleship. Which is basically, you and I, we live in a very consumeristic culture. Everything is like, what do I get for what do I give, right? And so that's kind of unconsciously or like put into our subconscious a bit what it looks like to follow Jesus. So for instance, um, I do things for God. Or um, I attend church. I give money. Um, I pray, I behave, and then God somehow in the course of that transaction gives me things, right? Gives me um, financial stability or a healthy family or a healthy marriage or peace and convenience and all those things. But what happens is when things happen in our lives that don't fit that transaction, a diagnosis happens. I lose a job. It starts to upset the balance of this transactional discipleship, right? And so what happens is, is, is we hear things in, 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 in teachings that say that there's, here are the principles, here are the principles, and if you just follow these principles about how to have a marriage and how to have a quiet time, that you will um, achieve kind of this disciple, uh, this maturity in Christ, but I don't think that's the kind of discipleship Jesus talked about. I think Jesus talked about something a little bit bigger. I, I call it vocational discipleship. You might be thinking, you mean like with our jobs? No. I'm talking about our whole life is about discipleship. Like everything in our lives needs to be able to be seen through the vocation of following Jesus. That means your job. That means your family. That means where you live, how you spend your money. All those things end up being what Jesus is actually saying by come and follow me. And what Jesus is modeling, we started talking about last week, and we're going to continue to talk about this week, is what it actually looks like in a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. So we're going to come back to this in a second. But last week, Jesus, teach, he starts off teaching in the synagogue. And you remember, he's teaching and people are like, this guy's got amazing authority. He's, he's, this authority that he has, he teaches as if he's the author, that he actually set all this up. And then there's this demon-possessed guy in church, right? Pretty cool, pretty exciting Sunday, Saturday for them. And, and then uh, he, after, uh, after church, they go over to Peter's for lunch. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And this, 
and a fever in that day and age was a pretty big deal. And Jesus heals her. And then everybody's starting to hear about this, right? So Jesus heals her. Jesus drives out this demon. And then at the end of the Sabbath, what, what happens? Everybody shows up on Peter's doorstep. The whole city shows up on Peter's doorstep. And Jesus begins to heal people and cast out demons well into the night. Exhausting day. Pretty important day. And the text shows us what happens next. Verse 35 of Mark 1. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. See, I used to read this passage. Maybe you were like me. I used to read this passage as Christians are supposed to have a quiet time. That's how I read it. Nothing wrong with that. I think that it's something to shoot for. I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Um, like I said last week, Jesus didn't go off with his Bible and his moleskin and a park bench and sip a latte and have a relaxing moment. Jesus was um, off alone, partly because of how the world operated, partly because how homes were created. We talked about that last week. But in my life, here's the deal, I'll admit, most of my prayer comes from a re reactionary place. Most of the prayer in my life comes from a reactionary place, meaning someone gets sick, something happens, I pray about that. This was not Jesus in, in a re reactionary place. This is Jesus intentionally keeping himself on his main vocation. And Jesus shows some serious intentionality. I mean, the reality is in my life, I am swept up all the forces of all the inertia in my life, all the economics, all the things that I've committed to, all the obligations, all those things in my life force me, okay, in some directions. And then when things pop up, I pray about them. That's not what this is. Jesus shows intentionality, and there's something else going on, but we have to really watch carefully what Jesus does here, because the late night beforehand was a big deal. There was a lot happening. You know, Jesus is doing his thing, people are being healed, demons are going away, and, and he rises up really early in the morning before daylight. Now, you got to understand, these homes weren't like ours, where everybody has their own bedroom, there's a meeting room, and then a kitchen, and no, it's, it's a big room. You push the cooking things aside, you roll out a mat, and then if there's a lot of people staying, um, you're kind of lined up. So Jesus gets up early, starts to like, you know, get, like step over people, sneaks out of the house, and, and what we find is, is he needed just 
He needed something more than sleep. He actually, in his, in his person, in his being, needed to remove himself from all these distractions and relationships to make sure that his vocation stayed right on target. Mark records Jesus praying three times. Now, you're like, well, he's Jesus. He should have been praying more than that. Okay. (laughs) Three times Mark records Jesus praying. Two of them are after really big things. Like after a major, what you would call success. The first one was this. Jesus heals all these really broken people in one town, Capernaum. 800 to 1,000 people are at his front door, and they're bringing people forward, and Jesus heals them. The second time that Jesus prays in solitary is after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus grabs the disciples, and they head out. Okay? Another change in direction. The third time is actually in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is kind of a big deal. And so these three times are really important because I think this point, Jesus in solitaire, was actually a place of temptation. We read before that Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And it's a very quick story in Mark. It's a very quick line or two. Matthew covers it more, okay? But I think this is a huge temptation time for Jesus. doesn't say it. I'm just reading into it. There's a lot of really cool things happening in Capernaum. I mean, people are getting excited. The disciples are getting excited. Um, they're, they're, they're wanting Jesus to do all this cool stuff with people. So the question, I have a couple questions. What does Jesus pray about? Jesus went out to pray that morning after a day of really amazing stuff. He may have taken time to, talk, to thank God for all the things that had happened, Um, He may have prayed for the people who had been healed. He may have recalled their faces and their their stories. He may have prayed not that they would would see beyond the miracle in their life and that they would understand and trust him. He wouldn't just be a popular miracle worker. He may have prayed for his disciples that they would kind of, their eyes would open up to who he was. He may have prayed for himself. But notice Jesus was probably experienced a bit of temptation here because there is just this huge pull going on in the idea that all these people were coming out. Now, understand what's going on. Why did Jesus even need to pray? Some of you might be asking that. Jesus is God. Why, why, was he, why did he even need to pray? Um, he was God in the flesh, after all. But we, re- we need to remember that Jesus was God in human flesh and he did, not, like, he did not come to this world to live as God. He came to this world to live as a spirit-filled human being. And so what we have is Jesus prayed because he lived his life in total dependence on the Father. He prayed because he wanted this connection, this relationship, this unhindered fellowship with the Father to continue, and he prayed because he wanted the Holy Spirit to flow through him and, and do the, this work in his life with absolute freedom. 
because Jesus had a vocation. He had this all-encompassing vocation and this overarching vocation in his life. And so here's the thing for us. Sometimes we feel like what we're doing in prayer is just changing God's mind. This idea of reactionary prayer, right? Someone's sick, I want to pray for them that God would do something for them. Or someone needs something, and so I'm going to pray that God would do that thing. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But so much of our praying is more about getting our will done in heaven and not about getting God's will done on earth. And, and if it's our will, we want God to intervene. And when we pray that, that, when Jesus lines up this whole idea of prayer and saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when we pray that, we actually sign ourselves up to be part of making that happen, meaning that's part of our vocation. And so Jesus shows up one day and he shows us what this looks like. When we pray a prayer, he probably, you know, this prayer that Jesus prayed, he probably prayed about the direction of what's next. Let me just say this. If your apprenticeship to Jesus is becoming more and more about your whole life, if you're like me and you're on a journey from transactional discipleship to vocational discipleship. And you're seeing more and more of your life open up to God's leading. Then prayer has to be a priority for us. Then this this idea of getting away, getting alone... um, and seeking God's will in our life, the direction of like big decisions in our lives. So the questions I have for me are, do I want the power of God in my life? Do I want to see God move in the people in my life, around me, in this community? Do I want a close relationship with God? Do I desire to be used by God in the fullest? And if that's the case, then I have to see it necessary to remove myself from expectations, from all the hustle, from all the pull of everything. It says here in verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Like, I actually think that they had a little bit of frustration in their voice. Because people showed up at Peter's house, that morning, and they're like, uh, is Jesus here? Because you know, there's a few, few other people <laughs> that, need to, that need to get fixed. There's a few other people that need Jesus. And so the disciples, you know, they're pretty cool because they're close to Jesus. They're like, uh, we'll go find him. So once they find him, they're like, hey, all these people are looking for you. And, and, and they need you to come back and do this stuff you did last night. And, and they're just for sure that Jesus is on the verge of superstardom, that Jesus is like at any minute going to declare himself Messiah and, and he's going to gather an army and they're going to deliver them from Rome. And there's just, there's all this cool stuff they're seeing in the future, right? 
And they come to Jesus and encourage him to capitalize on his enormous popularity. And Jesus kind of refuses that. And he refuses to allow the disciples or the people of Capernaum to dictate his vocation. Like his vocation is something else. Jesus replied in verse 38, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now here's the interesting part. I mean, if you're a real critic and cynic, you might go, dang, Jesus, that's pretty cold. Like, just because people weren't there the night before, they didn't get healed. Like, what about the people that showed up in the morning? But Jesus replies, so let's go somewhere else um, so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. So Jesus' number one goal is to preach, to announce that the kingdom of God is here. And he demonstrates it by uh, casting out demons and healing the sick. Healing the sick is a foretaste. It's like a future, like a, like a seeing how, how God's going to restore uh, creation back to its original intent, right? So all of these people get healed, correct? But they still die one day. Like, I'm not trying to be a jerk. Like, I'm, like here, this is all temporary, it's all temporary healing that Jesus is doing. But what he's showing is that one day, I'm going to restore creation. I'm going to be a part of making this all new. And he's casting out demons, and what does that show? That he's got power over sin and death and evil. And those are two really amazing things. But he says the most important thing is announcing that the kingdom of God is here. And so what about us? What does this have to do with us? Is this some daily prayer ritual that we should make part of our lives as good Christians? Is this a formula? Maybe this is a formula for how we can um, do life better. Or is this just part of what Jesus wants us to live into? In the book of John... Gospel of John, John um, catches this moment of Jesus praying in the garden. And he records it. And part of the prayer goes like this. This is John chapter 17. Jesus says, I am coming to you now. He's talking to the Father. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them, my, uh, given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He's talking about the disciples gathered with him at, at Gethsemane. They are not of the world, even, I as, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they may be truly sanctified. But listen to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And that's you. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I'm going to read that again. May you, okay, he's talking about you who've come to follow Jesus because of the message of the disciples passed along through generation to generation. May you also be in Jesus and the Father in this wonderful, beautiful relationship so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Following Jesus is not a category in your life. It's not a bucket. It's not a bucket alongside other buckets, okay? You have your work bucket, you have your home bucket, you have your hobby bucket, you have your following Jesus bucket. Following Jesus is not a category. It's not a Lego piece that you add to other pieces to create the kind of life that you want. Following Jesus is a whole life vocation, It informs everything in our lives. That is what Jesus is showing us here. He's showing us that he is so in tune with the Father that he has to pull himself out of a very good situation, very good things, very alluring successes to make sure that he is on target with his life. There's another great book that I choose to read over other books is this book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Now, I just want to tell you that there's about 10 books that I would recommend in your life. This one was really impactful for me because, um, for, for a lot of reasons, I mean, convinced Ben to read it. Ben liked it. Didn't you like it? Yes. Thumbs up, Ben. Alan Kreider says this. Clearly, the early Christians thought that their way of life was important. For lifestyle is not the only product of belief. It is a display of what the people truly believe. The Christian's lifestyle embodies their habitus, their habits. The the reflexes that reveal the inner inner character that resulted from their conversion, meaning their, their actions in their lives, the habits that came out of their reflexes in life came from an inner belief, like an inner trust, an inner um, connection with the Father at their conversion. And so what he's arguing is that because the early church had this patient, steady, uh, faithful quality to them, that in the midst of all the chaos going on in life, their habits... Their lifestyle spoke to the God they believed in and they followed. So your job, your ambitions, your circumstances, your dreams, those do not inform your apprenticeship to Jesus. 
okay? Those don't inform your apprenticeship to Jesus. Your apprenticeship of Jesus informs your job, informs your ambitions, your money, and your circumstances. So we see things inverted. So what a time of solitude and prayer is, is that helps those things get realigned. Does that make sense? Like Jesus shows us how to pull out, realign, connect again with the Father, and then come back in and go, ah, this no longer belongs. Or this needs to be pursued. When we lose our focus on our big V vocation, we really miss out. We really miss out on what God has called us to do. And, and here's the thing. It's really easy to lose focus. I read a quote from Thomas Merton the other day. It was in a, it, it's in a little book um, by Henry Nowen. And he wrote this. He said, society was regarded by the Desert Fathers. And the Desert Fathers are a group of people that um, in the early uh, beginnings of the church, for a few hundred years of the church, pulled themselves out of society because the, actually the Christian church was getting a little bit corrupt. It was actually kind of wedding itself with Roman politics and with money and aristocracy. And so there was a group of people that pulled themselves out of that whole mess. And he said this, society was regarded by the desert fathers as a shipwreck from which every single individual man and woman had to swim for their lives. These were people who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely and simply a disaster. And I think this is huge for us. You and I are quickly and easily swept along. And even more than ever with our connection to computers in our pockets, we are quickly and swiftly swept along by just inertia of our culture and things. And if we're not careful, we'll shipwreck. So today... Jesus models something really critical for us. And the danger for us is drifting. It's just to passively go through life asleep, missing out on the calling of our lives. And the, the disciples learn this. I mean, if you read in Acts, they begin to learn this in their life. And, and it takes them years, but they begin to learn and practice and listen to the Holy Spirit. Uh, just read the book of Acts. But today, maybe you're one of these four places. Maybe you've experienced some, some kind of success or fortune, or maybe you've reached a goal or a milestone in your life. Uh, and our world says, capitalize on that, uh, build on that, push harder, work harder, aim higher, accumulate more. And maybe there's no better time then right now, in the midst of just life seems to be working and cranking and moving, then for you to pull out and recalibrate and reflect and get alone with God and ask him, what next? And maybe 
the what next is going to be hard. Maybe at some point God's going to ask you to say no to something that's just like perfect next step on the ladder. Maybe God's going to ask you to reorient your job, reorient your finances to do something different. But that comes out of solitude. And what I'm saying, you might be going, well, then I'm not going to do solitude because that sounds scary. What I'm telling you is there's a life on offer from Jesus that is so amazing that it may require you to do some things that just, like your family's going to be like, what? So maybe there's a bit of success that you need to square away with God and Maybe you're at a crossroads in your life. Maybe there's some big decisions coming up that affect you and affect many people. And, and maybe, maybe you're, you're wanting to please those people and just continue things as normal, but following God's direction in your life is actually mean, meaning saying no to some really important and really good things. Sometimes it's really, uh, it, there's not a good choice and a bad choice. And follow the good choice. Maybe there's just a bunch of really great choices. And you need to remove yourself from the voices and hear the voice that matters. Maybe you are here and you're haunted by the idea of doing Christian things to get something in return. Maybe that's been your life. Maybe that's been your church journey. Maybe your time of solitude needs to be this this kind of desperate, um, maybe you're just desperate to be just reshaped or shaped again by the story of God. But I want to encourage you to do this. I want, you to, I want to encourage you this week, some point, we have practices on our website. Um, you just go to those. There's a, there's a couple in there about silence and solitude. I mean, if you've never done this before, if you've never turned your phone off, and, and, and removed yourself, maybe go on a beautiful day today, maybe turn your phone off and go for a long walk. It might take you 15, 20 minutes to clear your mind of all the things you feel like you need to do and all the expectations people have on you. And you just need to get alone, ask questions. I mean, here's, I'm, I'm just telling you this right now. You may not walk back and go, oh, I've got the answer. That's not the point. The point is you removing yourself, the discipline of being alone and hearing from God again. Maybe for some of you for the first time in a long time. Because God has a big vocation for you. And it might be drastic and it might be simple. But there's a big vocation for you that he wants to pull you into and, and show you. And this will even continue in our conversation next week. So let me pray for us. God, this morning we, we I would just be honest, I, I'm scared of solitude. I, I, I want it so bad and I'm afraid of it so much. God, for me personally, it's easier for me to just distract myself or to escape from areas in my life that are painful or difficult or confusing. 
God, I, I look at Jesus as someone who lived a fully human life, meaning he experienced it, the same kind of, of pulls that I do and that we do. And yet he maintained a connection with you so much so that he sought it out. He sought it out because he knew his vocation was set. And God, this morning, wherever we're at, maybe there's some real success and ambition and, 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 and really milestones and, and, and goals that have been achieved in this room. And God, maybe that's a moment for, for those who have done that to pull away and wrestle that out with you. Maybe there's some people in here, God, that are just frustrated, that are at a crossroads, that are not sure what decision to make. And they just need to be alone with you to hear from you. And God, for all of us, may we be reshaped by your story. May we begin to see what it looks like to follow you with our whole lives and not just hearts and categories. And may we see the freedom from just doing things to get things from you. God, would you just give us the grace to just try this, to try to be alone with you, to try to, to get ourselves unplugged from the, this, the pull and the inertia all around us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.